I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And Luke is found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. As we go to Luke chapter 2, we'll be in verses 41 through 52. We're finishing out the chapter. Um, last week, uh, Reverend Kayla Fick preached on Simeon and Anna and, and Christ appearing to them and the promises fulfilled, these prophets of promise that were given. And now we turn to one of the only um, stories in the Bible of Jesus' childhood. And as we turn to Luke 2, we'll remember that Jesus, Son of God, has been born into the world, the Messiah, has taken on human flesh and dwells among us. And that child still has to grow up and still has some growing up to do. And that means that his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, will have the task of raising him. No pressure here to be raising the Son of God on earth. So as we turn our attention to the Word, um, I invite you to follow along uh, with your Bibles. And But before we do so, let's pray for God's blessing upon the Word. God, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to your Word, that the words that we hear may bless us and challenge us, that our understanding of who you are may be enriched, that in all ways we may get, be giving our focus and priority to you and to your kingdom purposes. So as we hear this story of Jesus and his interactions with Mary and Joseph and within the temple, Lord, may we seek after you, not just you as a child, but you in all of your fullness, that we may be your children in spirit and in truth. So God, as we turn to your word, open it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's something of a comfort to know that Joseph and Mary were just like us as parents and that they too would make mistakes. And, you know, sometimes we forget our kids. 
I would say overall, church is not the worst place to forget your kids. Having heard stories of children left at gas stations um, and children left in department stores, uh, probably the scariest one that I can think of um, being a parent now was hearing a story of uh, parents forgetting one of their children at a rest area on the interstate, which means that once they're in the car, you have to get to the next spot that you can turn around to go the other way, to get all the way past the rest area, to turn around again, and that every passing vehicle would just be a reason to be terrified. And of course, I don't know for sure, but I doubt that they went all the way to the next exit. But if you were in that position too, you'd probably use one of those no allowed, only authorized vehicles, emergency only turnaround points for an actual emergency. But you know, all's well that ends well. But Joseph and Mary definitely forgot their kid at church. Now, within that, though, we have to cut them a little bit of slack. In fact, it's almost as if Luke, as inspired by God to write this gospel, gives us a key detail, is that Jesus was 12 years old. We're, we're told that straightforward. Jesus was 12. Why does that really matter? Well, means that Jesus is not yet bar mitzvah age, where he would definitely, in the caravan of people that went from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and then they all caravaned back Jerusalem to Nazareth, Jesus would not be of the age that he would for sure be with the men and the older boys, but he could be. And he could be with Mary and the women, other women and the boys and girls. Being 12, Jesus kind of could have gone with either one, and so Joseph and Mary both have equally good reasoning to say, oh, he's probably with the other parent. And of course, you can imagine as if you're parents um, how that argument with your spouse goes. We can do a little bit of blaming, but ultimately we just have to go back and fix this and find Jesus. We have lost the Son of God. Well, Jesus, of course is completely unflamoxed by the whole event. And in fact, is a little bit surprised. We get almost, not sarcasm with Jesus, but some kind of little holy son of God attitude. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I'd be here? For Mary and Joseph, this was the terrifying time of, of being a day away, having to travel all the way back, and then we're, this is one of the biggest cities that Joseph and Mary go to. So now they have to search the city looking for their kid. It reminds me that Home Alone is a really good Christmas movie, all things considered. Home Alone lost in New York, Kevin McAllister, or Jesus lost in Jerusalem. But Jesus is like, you knew I had to be here, right? This is not hard. Jesus asserts to Joseph and Mary that it should not have been hard for you to find me. This is not a great puzzle. This is not a great mystery. You know exactly where to find me. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know that I would be with the rabbis and the teachers of the law? Didn't you know that I had to be in the place where dialogue about the scriptures would be taking place? Didn't you know that I had to be in this place that is a house of prayer? Didn't you know that I had to be in the place where sacrifices and tithes are offered? Didn't you know that I had to be in the place where fasting takes place for people to come and to worship God? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house, in this place of God's activity? Come on, Joseph and Mary, this shouldn't have been this hard. 
you should have known exactly where I was. Mary and Joseph, in this case, they don't totally grasp. They, they hear the words that he's saying, but they don't totally grasp the meaning of them. And yet, as Mary's custom is throughout the Gospel of Luke, she treasures these things. She ponders them in her heart. She wonders about them and what their deeper meaning is, holding on to all of these little events and episodes of Jesus' life. Until one day, Luke, the physician, in writing his account of the Gospel of, and, and the early church, would probably have conversations with Mary about the things that she treasured and pondered in her heart, the things that she remembered that stood out to her, and the meaning that then was fully understood. Jesus is in the temple. Now, as we think about appropriate uses of a text, and we also know as people of faith that there are misappropriated uses of a text. There's ways in which the church and Christian believers can sometimes weaponize Scripture in unhelpful ways that produce probably more shame than any kind of holiness or progress in discipleship. And so when we hear that Jesus is like, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I had to be in church? There is probably an option where we could jump to saying, you do belong in church. And I would say, yes, that's true. But let's be careful not to somehow weaponize this text as a threat of church attendance. As we install six elders and deacons uh, later in service today, just a reminder that we're installing them to serve the church and to serve the congregation, that we're not assembling a goon squad for keeping up on our church attendance. In fact, probably the most teasing about church attendance that happens is among the elders themselves, getting after each other. If you ever walk by the chapel when we're meeting for prayer at nine o'clock and hear laughter, well, I'm just saying there's a good chance that you'll hear it. But Jesus is in the temple, though. The temple's important. The temple has significance. It's a place of worship. And as the, the kind of the pillars of practicing Jewish faith were scripture reading, prayer, fasting, and offering your sacrifices and tithes, those four were the pillars of the Jewish practice of religion, and all four of those things would happen within the temple. I would note that they could also happen in other places too, that the worship at the temple was meant to shape and form and be the center point that would also be the practices that you would take home with you. In that regard, not much has changed. Worshiping together, our corporate worship as Christians, matters to us, and it should matter to us but it shouldn't matter just on Sunday. It should be the things that we do here that we take away that are practices throughout the week as well. That we are shaped by this, but then we shape our household life as well. This pattern is traditional. It's old. It is well used and well trusted. And Jesus does tell us something by the simple fact, didn't you know I had to be here? But Jesus has an interesting relationship with the temple. Jesus does not center himself necessarily on only the temple himself. As a boy being shaped and formed, and as the scriptures tell us, that he's growing in wisdom and stature. As he's growing, the temple is exactly the place. As he comes into his fullness, as he begins his public ministry, Jesus says some other interesting things about the temple. In John 2, he says that he'll destroy the temple and raise it in three days. And of course, he's talking about his body. 
But this is one of the times where all of the Gospels are, are aware of the same event happening because that's said in John 2, but in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, people in Jesus' trial confirm that he said that. And in John chapter 4, this is the story of Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well. The woman at the well, the Samaritan, says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, our, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus replied to her, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. There's a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Temple still matters, hold on to that. But know that in the Gospel of John, there's, there's often two meanings. There's the immediate and the further out far-reaching meaning. And of course, Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, yeah, there's going to be a time where we're going to worship God in all kinds of different places throughout the earth. It won't be about being on Jerusalem or upon your holy mountain. It will be worshiping God where you are. However, the further reaching meaning is that eventually we will all worship together at Christ's second coming. When Christ shall return and make all things new, we will worship together, well, in the very presence of God. Two meanings. But where does the temple fit into this then? Where as we begin a new year, as, as we get back into school habits and routines, as we look ahead to the busyness of our lives and in the world, where does the temple worship come to? Where does it fit in all of this? Knowing that it's not only worship in Jerusalem at the temple that counts, which is good news for most of us because, well, I've never been to Jerusalem. I wonder if it's helpful for us to give one thing that we can maybe take into our week, something that your body can remember. So if you're willing to play along with me, just to humor me, consider it a Christmas gift. Um, can you take your arms and put them like this so that your top fingers are touching? Okay, great. And now take your thumbs, because we all have opposable thumbs, and put your thumbs together, all right? So now you've got this nice triangle at the top. And in Christianity, we love triangles because triangle, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love the Trinity. And it is at the top of everything is to be in right relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with God. But now, what's all this other stuff underneath? You can put your arms down, but I want you to remember that, and I'll probably have you do it again just to get it in your head. At the top of our pyramid is being in right relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit that is in our hearts and will never leave us or forsake us, that we can pray to God the Father. All of this is a gift from God. The top of our little pyramid, because I think your arms are included in this pyramid, the top of the pyramid is being in right relationship with God. And in one sense, when Jesus says to Joseph and Mary, didn't you know I had to be here in this place of worship? Didn't you know that it is a gift from God to be in right relationship with God and that since Jesus, in fact, is God, he will be in places that are aligned with God's will, where there's scripture reading and prayer and fasting and sacrificing and tithes. All of these things are there. But those things that happen in the temple, they're not the top triangle. They're not the part that's shaped by your hands. They're all of the foundations that are underneath it, holding it up and lifting it up. Because this top part 
is a gift from God. Our salvation, our being made right with God, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life, those are a gift from God. They come from top down to us, but they're at the top of our pyramid. But what is your pyramid made of underneath that? Knowing that you're right in right relationship with God, what is it that holds that up that is part of your practice? What's the foundation of it that you truly believe and live into the fact that your identity is a beloved child of God, a beloved child, not a disappointing child, not a halfway accepted child, not a child born with some regret, but a beloved child of God. This is our identity, the top of the pyramid. And what is it that is the foundation that holds all that up? What are the practices that we do to build that foundation, to hold our identity up at the top, that that gift from God has a place to rest and settle, and that it's the top and it shapes everything underneath it? I think in this way, kind of preaching to the literal choir here, church attendance matters. Gathering together to worship matters. It's one of the blocks in our pyramid that we say it matters for us to gather together with other believers and that the practices that we share together, that the words that we share together, the conversations we have, this matters. Singing together matters. All of that is part of our pyramid. Now, what we need to be careful about doing is not replacing something in the foundational pyramid with what's at the top. Because if you had perfect attendance the whole church year, but you just lived as a jerk then you've missed the point. Church attendance is one of the foundational pieces, but it's not our end game. In the same way that reading the scriptures is a really good idea. Reading the Bible should be part of our regular practice, not just here, but shaped and formed here that we take it into the week. Now, that doesn't mean that when we go, oh man, I forgot to read my Bible on Tuesday. I must be the worst of horrible, wretched sinners, and I'm really bad at being a Christian. No. That would be legalism. But if it was like, hey, do you read your Bible much? Mm, not really ever. That would also be a problem. We need to be careful of legalism, of taking things in the pyramid that hold up our identity. Just one more time, could you put your hands like this? Thinking about the pyramid as being right with God at the top. And all of the temple stuff, all of the worship stuff, all of the practices we do at home, praying before meals, what have you, is in this section down here. Thank you for humoring me. But I hope that just sticks with you for one part of the week. I would hope that the little things all add up and that at this point in the year we can take stock, not a shame-based stock, not a, okay, how can I outperform everyone else in the congregation? How can I be the best Christian? But that we're all living into the same identity as beloved children of God and that that foundation is not built on our own, but it's built together. I think one thing we can assess is what are the things that we would take for granted most if they were missing? And reading updates from our missionaries or, or words of hope, I think about the, um, the Christians that gather together like once every three years to worship together and that it is the greatest thing that they experience, that it's the best. We could take that kind of thing for granted so easily that it can be a part in the pyramid. So we can be tempted both ways with either legalism, that it has to be done this way all the time, or we can be tempted with replacing legalism with nothing. 
to say, well, it doesn't really matter that much. The important part is the triangle at the top and everything else is just kind of gravy. No, I think the bottom part of the pyramid is what holds up the top. So all of the normal things from the days of the Old Testament with the Jews worshiping, scripture reading, prayer, fasting, offering our sacrifices and tithe and, and gathering around the word, all of these matter as part of the pyramid. And so in that way, Jesus is saying, if you're looking for me, if you're searching for that connection with God, Jesus is saying, why were you searching for me? It's not that hard. You know where you should be able to find me. And they're not necessarily in the mountaintop experiences. They're not in those spiritual highs that we get from, from whoa, this amazing thing happened. It's from the foundational stuff. It's from our rhythms and habits because we are more our habits than our exceptional experiences. Though the exceptional experiences will be remembered, it is the habits that will build our foundation of faith and will hold up and both hold up and be shaped by the top of the pyramid that we are made to be in right relationship with God, that we are restored in a way that is not experienced since Genesis 1 and 2 when humanity walked with God unhindered. So don't replace, don't become legalists. Jesus had a thing or two to say to the Pharisees throughout his life on this earth. So it's not about legalism, and it's not about shaming ourselves when we, oh, forgot to read my Bible yesterday. Oh man, I've fallen behind a little bit in the prayer practices that I want to have. We don't beat ourselves up for those things, but we might take stock of them and to ask, are all the bricks of my pyramid in place? Are we building this up? Have we founded it in the right ways? Am I being shaped and formed in the ways that I want to? Because just as the parable of the sower that we discussed in Confession and Assurance tells us, there's always going to be things competing for our time, attention, energy, and focus. What's in the pyramid? But to know also, if God seems far away, Jesus would probably tell us today, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know where you'd find me? There's one other time in the Gospel of Luke that there's confusion about Jesus' whereabouts and that people are searching for Jesus and Mary is one of them yet again. And this takes place later in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, verse 5, when it's not Jesus but rather the angel who tells the women searching for Jesus, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Echoing that same question, why were you searching for me where I won't be found? This is a reminder that all the different bricks of our pyramid, they're not meant to be either legalistic in their insistence, nor are they meant to be let go of as if they don't matter, but also that they are practices that lead to life. The practices that lead to life, that we don't find Jesus in, in dead rituals or in, in boredom, but we find Jesus in life and that we are shaped and formed by him in these ways and that they do, in fact, matter. And it matters where we're looking for Jesus. So it's not rocket surgery to figure out where we find Jesus. And it's not our efforts that creates the top pyramid where we're in right relationship with God. But it's a foundation that we might build on this year, that we take stock of, you know what? Maybe there's a thing or two missing. And also to know that sometimes that's really hard. I hope 
that it's true, it, I find it true to be here, that this is a good place to gather for worship. I also have friends in different parts of the country and the world where it's maybe not that simple to find a place to be fitting in and accepted and being able to worship God in spirit and in truth with other believers. So once again, we avoid legalism. We don't take for granted the blessings that we do have. And we hope that just as Jesus grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with God and man, that we might do the same thing. Knowing what's at the top and knowing what practices are and are not in place in our lives to uphold that identity that we are beloved children of God who need not search for Christ but can find him where he offers himself and also who are not lost for we have been found. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in you we are both found and that in you we are made right with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That our righteousness before you, God, is not our own doing, but is a gift from God. So Lord, help us to be shaped and formed by the practices that help us to hold that identity as primary. God, we do give you thanks for the ways in which you reveal yourself to us, for the ways in which you give us that are maybe not as hard as much as a matter of commitment to continue to be close to you, to dwell with you, to learn more about you, and to hear your voice speaking to us. Lord, for these things, we give you thanks. And in your holy name we pray, amen.